Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Thirdly, I want to give a huge shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Athlete Concepts. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation educational material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. Hey guys, just before I introduce today's guest, I want to bring it to your awareness that the Irish Strength Institute will be hosting their annual symposium on the 28th and 29th of July at the Grand Hotel in Malahide in Dublin, Ireland. Now, the lineup that the ISI team put together for this symposium is absolutely outstanding. Some of the speakers that will be presenting at the symposium will be Dr. Eric Serrano, Dr. Ken Kanakin, the founder of the Swiss Conference, Victoria Felker, Alexandro Ferretti, as well as legendary coach Isvan Javorik. Yes, the godfather of barbell complexes, as well as a host of other outstanding speakers that you can find out about when you go to the registration page. Now, as listeners of this podcast, the ISI is offering you guys a 50 euro discount when you register for the event. The link along with the discount code and all of the event details will be linked up in the show notes. Thanks, guys. Sports performance consultant James Smith from Global Sports Concepts is back on with me for his monthly interview on the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. On this episode, James discusses the topic of sports preparatory engineering. This is a topic which James covers in depth in his book, The Governing Dynamics of Coaching. As always, this was another excellent episode with James. 
And to be honest, this is probably one of my favorite episodes to date. So I hope you guys really, really enjoy it. All right, James, we are live and a kicking. So back for another episode. So this time I asked you to pick the topic, and uh, it's one that you're, you were telling me just before we hopped on is um, explore the detail in the government dynamics. Um, so it's going to be sports preparatory engineering. Um, and I suppose maybe define that for the listeners, and then we can get into the specifics of it. So it's one of the two major thesis arguments that I present in the book. And what it is, is as normal and ordinary taken for granted and as intuitive as the concept is in the disciplines in which it has long since existed, it fails to exist in sport. So the the shortest explanation of it is an analog of a blueprint in an engineering context, say architecturally, which underpins the mechanical structure of every type of work that emerges from it in order to ultimately manifest the structure itself, the building. No amount of subcontractor specialty if you if you consider this and i can use other other disciplines to explain this but it it's probably most simple to understand the way that the blueprint has functioned in building physical structures if you consider analogs to sport coaching where the operational leadership is presented by a general contractor who is thereby supervising subcontractors of different specialty who then serve as analogs to assistant coaches and therapists, et cetera, of different subtypes. And what we know is no physical structure of any type of meaningful significance or complexity. And this, this goes back to, this goes back millennia. If we, if we think about Michelangelo and his architectural influence in Rome, no amount of logistical complexity in terms of the number of specialists, say, that are contributing to the final product of what we see as a building of any meaningful structure, whether it's a skyscraper or a church or an apartment building, whatever, nothing exists without first the predetermined blueprint that accounts for everything of structural significance so what the you mentioned offline one of the countries in the middle east that you possibly have a an interest in and 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 employment opportunities in in so let's take for example the burj khalifa in dubai the tallest building in the world. Think about how ridiculous it is to consider that something of this spectacular magnitude was created without a blueprint. What what then 
would possibly be the explanation for how something of such extraordinary, you know, engineering feat and complexity could have been made manifest without the idea of the engineering knowledge that goes in to determining the structure and its integrity and what must be so according to the knowledge of Newtonian mechanics and all that goes along with it. So as to hold up at these in this enormous vertical height against the elements, etc. Without the blueprint, what 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 is it then? Is it simply all the contractors got together and all right, let's go ahead and just sort of, you know, okay, structure, structural people over there, just, you know, you, you know what you're doing, just do what you do, and electrical people over here, you know, you guys, you have your electrical, you know, certifications, go ahead and do what you do, let's put something together good. You know, effectively what I'm describing is an, an analog of a sports program, which is to say, if I'm functioning as the head sport coach, who are my subcontractors? I have physios and I have the people over here in the weight room and I have the assistant sports people over here and the, the sports sciences over there and the psychology is over here. And what we, what we lack is a unifying mode of education. There, there's, no, there's nothing approximate to medical school or law school that unifies all of us. Mm-hmm. So what I'm doing as the head sports coach then is I'm assuming that my physio is competent. And why would I have that assumption? Oh, they have their credential. And I'm assuming, I go down the list of specialists and I'm assuming they're competent because either I hired them or some type of manager hired them who made the same assumption because the manager does not have the subject matter knowledge either. Now, this is no different than what happens in any other discipline in which individuals are hiring personnel void of the subject matter knowledge that constitutes the specific domain in which this personnel will be operating with the, co- with the company. So what then the, they're relying upon is the, what ends up being a misconception of the significance of a resume, which is one of my initial criticisms in the book. In that, apart in actuality from mathematics, mathematics exists on an island because it is the only intellectual discipline in which the concept of a proof is valid. The the only discipline of them all in which you can prove something to a certainty is mathematics. The, the, the hardest of the sciences. As soon as you emerge from that hardest of scientific disciplines, you can no longer prove something to a certainty. All that you can possibly achieve is really high degrees of probability, but not certainty. Thus, the current existence and historical, as a result, existence, or by default, of, the, of a resume is essentially an, an, an illusion. It is a, it's smoke and mirrors because you've heard me now many times over 
speak about what is so easily criticizable about empiricism, stating that knowledge derives from the senses. And what we know from this is that neither experience, accolade, or achievement has anything to do with knowledge creation. Mm -hmm. It's not even controversial once you discuss it and give it its give it its fair shake at thorough discussion. So we know this. We know that, okay, we understand that experience is not how knowledge is created. And even in the more subtle sense, experience is not even how it is gained. Even though I, I distinguish between absolute and relative knowledge, you don't even gain knowledge from experience because you're always criticizing absolutely everything that you're taking in before you assimilate it. So whether it's something, whether it's some type of knowledge that has never existed before or just something that Robbie shares with James that James was not aware of, but 9,000 other people were aware of, it's still not a transfer of knowledge. I, I'm, whether it's subconscious or not, I'm criticizing everything that Robbie tells me. And it's only after it passes these internal subconscious, if they are modes of error correction, that I then assimilate that knowledge. It's, it's not this, I copy it from one word document and paste it to another. If I am to understand it, which of course we have to distinguish knowledge gained from say mimicry, which in itself is a form of knowledge, but we have to make the distinction between the two or imitation, the difference between imitation or mimicry and some deep explanatory form of knowledge. So what I'm, what I'm getting around to here is the, 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 the fallacy of the, the resume and how that I haven't, it may sound like I've drifted from the concept of the engineered blueprint, but it all comes together here once I conclude, is that, so we understand then that what the resume consists of and how most individuals reviewing resumes average something approximate to about 30 seconds to a minute looking through one of them. What we know from this then is they're simply looking that proverbial boxes have been checked that fulfill this misconception of potential candidacy. Mm -hmm. And effectively what those boxes consist of is experience. Experience in A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Now we know that has been refuted Thus, the false assumption that encompasses the concept of the significance of a resume is quite easy to showcase. So alternatively, the best possible resume would simply be name, contact details, and an explanation an explanation of one's own argument as to why they are a candidate 
for the position they're interested in. Because explanatory ability and the content of explanation is the only way to demonstrate understanding knowledge. There's no other way that has a more direct correlation. So if I'm an employer, the, the most I could expect to derive from a piece of paper is the nuances of your explanatory ability as it relates to the subject matter. Knowing that you could be plagiarizing, you could have had someone do it for you, all the rest, ultimately that will come to bear if you are selected to be interviewed. Mm -hmm. And then quite simply, as, as just extraordinarily parochial as this is, the what you couple this concept with, and this is something I've consulted professionally for regarding individuals who are actually hiring individuals at high levels of administration at the executive level. You couple the explanatory content, which should be all that a resume consists of in order to distinguish who knows what by virtue of your ability to explain, followed with an actual approximation of the job itself. It's too simple. So depending upon the logistics of the profession in question, some allow for the individual to actually have a trial run at doing the work. Others would not allow for a, a trial run due to the implications or the consequences of a mistake being made. And therefore, you'd have to have a virtual approximation. But the, the point is you have to approximate the, it doesn't matter whether it's coaching or whether it's an athlete or whether it's working at a Fortune 500 company, you name it. You have to approximate the conditions themselves as closely as possible in order to determine competency. And the more objective measures one has in place, the greater the probability you have of a positive outcome when those objective quantities are satisfied. This, this brings me to the concept of what underpins structural integrity. How are we to determine competency, probability of intended outcome? What role does a blueprint serve in this? And so the, the, the examples that I give, and I, I might even have said a version of this, I don't recall, in, in some of our previous podcasts, is you know here we are talking in opposite size of the globe for all intents and purposes. We can both see that we're sitting on a couch. And, and what I know to near certainty is that since we've been chatting, not in the least have you been preoccupied about the roof falling on your head. I, you know, I, I, I cannot state with certainty because scientifically that is implausible. But for all intents and purposes, I could say I'm certain that the one thought you have not had since we've been talking is what are you going to do if the roof falls on your head? I can verify that. <laughs> it, right? And, and I could come up with a, an infinite amount of other thoughts 
that I could say for all intents and purposes, Robbie has not had this thought that now the the reason you have not thought about the roof falling on your head if i if i say let's let's unpack that so let let me let let's have you lead us down this rabbit hole robbie give me your thoughts on why the last thing on your mind is whether the roof will fall on your head why are you not concerned about that because it's never happened before okay so there's a sense of certainty that the roof is going to be fine. What we, it, so that's a that is a perfectly ordinary response, right? And, and ever, <laughs> everyone will understand that. But we also know how the past is not a predictor of the future. Oh yeah, we know this. Yeah. Certainly, though, we can we can plausibly derive a certain amount of confidence particularly the longer the track record we have, that, that increases probability. So I'll elaborate for you. So not only because it's never happened to you before, we have to go to the reason why. Because of the structure you, of the house. Right? Mm-hmm. And so what we have to say is, well, how far back in history would we go or even where else in the world might we travel where the probability of the roof collapsing is a much greater one? And why is that? Mm-hmm. So whether it's currently in a place of the world now where, say, ec- the economy, the infrastructure, the financial resource, some combination of those, say, in the third world is not sufficient. And so, you know, in this March of 2018, we can go to places in the world now where families are being raised in grass huts with dirt floors and roofs made out of the roughage indigenous to the area. Therefore, much less resilient to environmental extremes than what the first world has access to. So, there'd be a greater probability mm-hmm. even though if we develop the language understanding and we ask people of some remote village, let's say in the Amazon, which is essentially disconnected from modernity. And we learn the, the, how to ask the question, how often do roofs fall on your heads in the village? It's certainly possible that they say, you know, not very often. Because they've evolved in their own way over time to make these durable structures, even with their limited resource. However, in comparison to what the first world has to offer, when we start talking about, okay, well, what if one of these structures in this area of the Amazon was now in South Florida when hurricane force winds are fairly seasonally common? Now, how does it hold up? And the answer is, not very well. So whether we go back in time or we look at present time, we have the same reason for the lack of structural integrity. And when you start extending this to you know cosmopolitan areas where there's a greater number of people living, greater greater implications for the lack of structural integrity, and lo and behold, what what develops over the course of millennia, the concept of, in this case, architectural engineering. 
Similarly, when we go from the Wright brothers, who incidentally were some of their own biggest critics with respect, if anyone understands the history, as to how far we were away from having airplanes, if we go from the Wright brothers to modern-day commercial or military aircraft, we have marvels of engineering that, that represent the differential between the two. And again, we could say, why is that? What was and currently what is the reason for a greater instance of plane crashes and mechanical problems, structural problems? And it's some combination of both operator error, this day and age, much more so of operator error or lack of maintenance, depending upon where you are in the world. Whereas when you go farther back in time, you'll always have those same constants, but what you'll have much more so back in time than you do now is the absence of, in this case, aeronautical engineering knowledge. And we can go to shipbuilding and you name it, automobile. So it's it, the reason why it didn't even cross your mind whether the roof's going to fall on your head is the same reason why anyone who ends up listening to this podcast while driving will not, until I've said it now, have thought about the wheels falling off their car or the roof blowing off or the cylinder heads exploded, you know, the, the pistons exploding through the cylinder heads why is that? And, and, and if someone happens to download this and listen to it for the first time on an airplane, why is it that there's, you know, again, I cannot say any of these things to a certainty. Why is there such an infinitesimal chance that until I say it now, they'll have been thinking, oh, no, what's going to happen if the wings fall off of the airplane? Engineering is the answer to all of these questions. The progress of engineering and the checks and balances that are associated with the confidence that we have in our engineers, architectural, aerospace, aeronautical, boats, you, on and on and on. Electrical, mechanical, you name it. Why is that? Why do we have high probabilities, high predictive power in the engineering? It's due to the scientific rigor associated with it. So we know that we cannot prove to a certainty anything apart from mathematics. And lo and behold, what is the role that mathematics plays in engineering? It plays an enormously significant role in any discipline in which mathematics constitutes a high proportion of its substrate. You, you're just, whether one has devoted much thought to this or not, you're, you can just take for granted that you have a higher degree of probability associated with outcome due to mathematical reliability. So while we cannot prove anything to a certainty, as soon as we extend apart from pure abstract mathematics, what we can have is really high degrees of confidence. And that's the reason for the 
fact that very few of us concern ourselves with structural disaster when we are in buildings and planes and automobiles and boats and houses. And so in thinking about this, which for me began, you know, as this regards our discussion in sport, for me, this goes back to, I guess, around 2004. I thought, how unusual. Where is the blueprint for sport? What's worse, not only is there no unifying blueprint, there's actually multiple different versions of one that are incongruent with one another because what you do have some type of version of, nothing that is tantamount to, for example, a blueprint that would be generated for the purposes of automotive or aeronautics or architecture, nothing even close to that, let alone what I offer as examples of these blueprints in the book. What, What you have is some sort of ambiguous concept of what to do in the coming weeks from, for example, sport coaches, physios, so on. And what I mean by that is what level of quantitative detail is demonstrated? So, so lo and behold, the colloquial misconceptions that permeate the world of sport in terms of the apologists for the dynamic complexity, the, the apologists for, oh, who knows, you know, it's a puncher's chance. The parochial misconceptions are steeped in the lack of predictive power due to the absence of engineering. So tantamount to how the blueprint functions and all these different domains that I've spoken about, the one that I write about in the book that does not exist in sport yet must, according to my argument, is effectively an analog, which is to say that everything, and and here I can actually use the same even jargon, everything of mechanical or structural consequence, absolutely everything. So if we speak in clinical terminology, we restrict our jargon to simply ask every listener, abandon to the best of your ability, all preconception and simply in your mind associate what actions taken, no matter by who, who they are supervised, instructed, what actions taken are of structural mechanical significance. This this fundamental understanding has unifying potential. Forget about preconception. What 
renders structural mechanical significance. And given its due course, what everyone must arrive at is, well, okay, let's, let's pick a sport in question. Uh, rugby union. Well, skill practice on the pitch, that, that has profound structural mechanical cost. Things done with barbells and, and resistance bands and cables, those have structural mechanical cost. When they jump, when they sprint on the track, when they throw these things, that has structural mechanical cost. The players being rehabilitated once they're past the initial triage stages in the beginning on their return to competition readiness, that has structural mechanical cost. So, so utilizing the jargon, well, I'm identifying structural mechanical cost coming from sport coaching, from strength coaching, from active physiotherapy, structural mechanical cost shared between everyone. And the answer is correct. Now show me the single blueprint that collectively accounts for every one of them. And no sport organization in the world that I'm aware of could produce anything. The most that would be produced is, well, this is the attempt at quantifying future workload from the sport coaches. Here's one. Here's another. This is the strength coach's idea for what to do for the next six weeks. Now let's go to the let's go to the physio. Okay, the physio. What we have here is we have different protocols that have been standardized for if it's an ACL, if it's a shoulder, if it's a labrum, if it's a rotator cuff, if it's a hamstring, if it's soft tissue, if, if it's connective tissue, if it's bone. So if we use this concept of blueprint, well, the physio has got about thirty-six different blueprints depending upon the injury. The strength coach has got a handful of here depending upon the motor quality that is the objective of their of their agenda. We've got the sport coaches. Ironically, you know, we, we, we know that the sport coaching is the most significant of them all because that has the most direct relationship to competition outcome. And ironically, here we have the most sort of ambiguous version in which it's it's uh, I don't really have a good thing to I don't have a good representation to show you in terms of quantity of actions essentially what I can show you and this accounts for for almost all the sports out there is time it's effectively what I can show you is okay well here's sort of the Monday through Saturday or Friday or Sunday through Thursday whatever the schedule is for the sport okay here's what they here's what the coaches have for you know this 3 week camp period or this competition calendar segment of eight weeks here. But what, what you're not going to see is, is, is anything really of quantitative relevance beyond on this day, 12 minutes of this, 15 minutes of that, a 20 minute period of this. And it, and it talks about what they are, the objective of that period is, but, uh, but nothing much more quantitative than that. And so then it's okay then. Well, no wonder why there's so much apologizing for the absence of predictive power of preparation. Because if the same thing existed in the building of airplanes or automobiles or rockets or skyscrapers or apartment buildings, we would be in a 
time capsule, effectively, somewhere back in time where disastrous consequences of this absence of engineering knowledge were commonly manifest. It would be a disaster. The, the, the you, you and I having this podcast, one of the first things on our mind would be, shit, is today the, the day the roof's going to go? And, and instead of it being something that we don't even think about, it, it would be in the forefront of our consciousness. And we would be very skeptical about getting in an airplane. And we would probably prefer our horse over the automobile due to the amount of disasters that would be associated with all of these entities in the absence of the engineering. So someone might say, okay, James, fair enough. I understand the value and the predictive power and the probabilistic significance of engineering as it exists in all these other disciplines. So then, James, how do you then explain the, the, the long-term success of the All Blacks, the Philadelphia Eagles who won the Super Bowl, NHL team this, Major League Baseball team that, Australian rules football team this, why is association football team that successful here? Why is there success in La Liga? And how do we compare that to the Bundesliga? How are you explaining the success of all these different sport teams? And I, and I didn't even mention athletes in individual sports and cycling and Nordic skiing and swimming and track and field. How then, James, does your argument hold up given the fact that we've got these individual athletes and these team sports that have been successful for long periods of time, they've shown continual success over, let's say, years. How then do you explain that? And that's then when we come back to the compensating power of talented athletes, which is a medium of tradecraft that even something analogous to is only shared by individuals working in disciplines who are relying upon, in this case, human beings to perform the work. The adaptive, the corrective, the overcoming capability of a human being provides an extraordinary luxury to a supervisor who is incompetent that any other domain in which the medium of tradecraft is not this adaptive self-correcting thing does not. The general contractor in building, the architect in aerospace, in aeronautics, in automotive, in any of these disciplines, the medium of the tradecraft are these physical things that do not self-correct. So necessarily, there has to be a greater sense of both subject matter knowledge and quantitative significance to the process because you simply cannot get away with nonsense and expect to have reliability in the airplane, in the automobile, in the, the, the skyscraper with its structural integrity, in the food that you're eating at the restaurant, 
in which all of these different examples in which the medium of tradecraft is not a human being and what the human being can recover from and what the human being can overcome and what the human being can adapt to. Instead, the medium of tradecraft is the, the cut of beef that I'm preparing for you, which if I cook it 30 seconds too long, it's unacceptable to you because you asked for rare. Or if you ask for medium well and I take it off 30 seconds too soon, it's unacceptable. And I, I'm going to use the word coach, who's the actual cook or the chef, my incompetence has now been brought to bear immediately. I have been exposed in a matter of seconds. Mm. Cooking is one of the fastest ways to demonstrate this, where you might get away with it a little bit longer, let's say if it's in architecture or an automotive, because maybe the roof doesn't collapse on day one, but maybe it leaks after the first significant rainstorm. And maybe the car doesn't completely disassemble as you drive it off the lot, but you're having engine, you're having drivetrain, you're having transmission problems sooner than you'd expect. So the, the point is, it, it is a function of time but in all cases, you're exposed much faster in all of these disciplines in which the medium of tradecraft is not this adaptive, self-correcting entity. Whereas, if I am the manager of people in a financial institution, if I'm a sport coach, if I'm a military leader, in which all cases, the medium of my tradecraft is human performance, I can be objectively incompetent, yet still be the operational leader of an exceptionally productive group of people. And that's the reason why. Because people self-correct, they adapt, they overcome in ways that, for the examples I'm making here, either non-organic or non-sentient things absolutely cannot. So this concept of sport preparatory engineering is a vision of the future and in, in my according to my argument, one that is essentially immutable to attempts to criticize. And it is the concept of an individual who engineers the blueprint for every single aspect of structural mechanical cost that falls under the global jargon of preparation. Absolutely anything done under an umbrella of whether it's medical, physiotherapeutic, biomotor, biodynamic, bioenergetic, technical, tactical, Sensory motor, psychological with a physical context, anything that falls under, and I just rattled off most of the governing dynamics, that falls under one of these domains whose manifestation has a structural mechanical significance must be accounted for on one 
single blueprint. In this way, I can draw an additional analogy to musical composition. So if we take symphonic, classical, orchestral composition, what we have very ordinarily, let's say, is a symphony of an approximate 80, 90, 100 different musicians. So suffice it to say, one in terms of number of personnel that far exceeds any sport team on planet Earth. The greatest numbers you'll have is probably American football at the actual, at the collegiate level, where you, we actually will have more players on a team than you do even at the level of the NFL. Unless you include practice squad, then they become somewhat co comparable. So you've got more individuals, say, in a given orchestra than, we'll, we'll just say for the sake of argument, any sports team, even in American football. And not only do you have more individuals, you have a variety of specialty fields, because this is the instrumentation. Strings, brass, woodwinds, percussion, What is the unifying mechanism? It's the composition that they're performing. Even though the composition consists of melodies, harmonies that are specific to each instrumentation group. So we have incredible complexity at the level of orchestral composition in which there exists very useful analogies to my argument, in which case the conductor serves as an excellent example of global load manager mm. or, head, or the future of head coaching, and the composer is the sports preparatory engineer. So what we say is all these works, the, the profundity of Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, Brahms, Mahler, Liszt, Schubert, Chopin, go down the list. Just the mind-blowing achievements of these individuals who walked the earth and created this music. One of them, one composer generating this cornucopia of complexity for all this, in the example of orchestral composition, all these different instrument groups, different musical pieces, depend, depending upon the, the type of composition when you talk about movements of a symphony. It, the cohesion that binds them together is the fact that this came from the mind of one individual, accounting for many different individuals with many different responsibilities. The, the, the rhythmic contribution of the percussion and every single instrument group, the melody and the harmony contributions of every instrument group, the sound, the inflections, which are then interpreted and augmented by the conductor, this, this profound complexity, such a high level of emergence, accounted for by that one composer. It is this type of thinking and discussion that must underpin the future of sport.
in which, according to my argument, the sport preparatory engineer is that one composer responsible for the execution of the composition, no matter how many moving parts the composition has, no matter the logistical complexity of people that are supervising these different parts, matters not. We need one individual, or at the very least, what I would accept is it does not have to be one individual. It could be more than one individual. However, they have to work together in order to produce. So whether it's one individual or more than one that is working together, what they're producing is this one thing, this one blueprint, this one sheet of music that accounts for everything to be done from that point. In this way, the sports preparatory engineer underpins. So say my argument in which there is no strength coach, there's just sport coaches and medical people, say that doesn't happen within the next few weeks, <laughs> which it probably won't. Say the current dysfunctional factionalization of specialty craft exists. Psychologists and strength coaches and physios and assistant coaches and sports scientists and nutrition and another dozen or so other factionalized specialties that should otherwise be unified. Say this does not change in the near term. Doesn't matter. What must underpin the work of anyone, I, I tend to reduce this down to sport coaches, strength coaches, and physios, because again, what I'm basing my argument on is anything done of structural mechanical significance. So this is why we don't have to account for the nutritionist because the nutritionist is not part of introducing some measure of activity that is structurally or mechanically consequential, nor does a pure psychologist, nor does a sports scientist with their data analysis collection and advisement, et cetera. It's essentially when we talk about the operational significance, who is either requiring or asking athletes to do things of structural and mechanical consequence. And what we can essentially reduce that down to is sport coaches, strength coaches, and physios. And what my argument says is that in the future, not a single sport coach, not a single strength coach, and not a single physio must take one action of instruction prior to that action being based off of the underlying blueprint. In the same way, that no instrument group, no single musician in an orchestra plays a note apart from that which has been composed. And if it's, and if it's a jazz big band, then we have a great deal of uh, improvisation in which notes are being played that were not written. However, they are based upon underlying chord structure from that blueprint, from the composition. And similarly, we know at the highest levels of cooking, recipes do not apply. However, at one point they did in order, if no other reason, to further in the minds of the people cooking the understanding of the relationships between different ingredient combinations and methods of food preparation. 
And so at the more parochial level, it's very common for us to say, oh, give me that great recipe for this thing that you made where at the highest levels of cooking, they're not passing around recipes. However, the point is to have developed this understanding of the relationships to have predictive power of the outcome. So if I'm, if I'm following a simple recipe that I've taken from someone reputable and knowledgeable, I then have confidence that this recipe will provide me with consistent and reliable outcomes. And similarly, if I'm going to build a simple physical structure, if I, if I own a house and I'm going to build some structure in the back for some children, a, a tree fort, a shed for tools, if I acquire a set of instructions, a blueprint from a competent engineer, a competent builder who is knowledgeable objectively in their domain, I then have good reason to have confidence in the probabilistic outcome that the shed is going to turn out well because of the reputation that precedes this individual who provide me with instructions on how to build it. And we can just go down the list of the utility that this concept serves of the, the blueprint and the predictive and reliable, the, the predictability and the reliability that's associated with the concept of a blueprint that is manifest of engineering knowledge as it relates to that discipline in question. So whether that's musical theory, whether that's mechanical engineering or aeronautical or so on and so forth. I use the jazz reference to account for the improvisation because obviously we know that the, co the concept of sport is not a purely mechanical one. Yeah. So we have to account for the creative freedom, not only account for, we have to encourage mm -hmm. Because when we, when we start talking about the, the, the philosophical underpinnings of the culture of sport, what we have to be honest in our dialogue about is how the overwhelming majority, particularly in sport teams, of cultural dynamics is authoritarian and tyrannical. We, we just we have to be honest about this. And now that sounds extreme. Wait a minute, James. Where, you, know, the, you, you just described sport as being approximate to North Korea. And we have to say let's speak let's speak honestly about this what is the nature of the hierarchy is it more approximate to vertical or horizontal what component does criticism play in the very fabric of the culture what platform for idea contribution exists for absolutely everyone is, is it a culture of the best idea wins no matter who the idea comes from? Is creative freedom encouraged from every single individual and not restricted to the constraints of their job title? Do they have general interdisciplinary creative freedom or not? So when we go through that example checklist, we realize that the answer for the overwhelming majority of programs is no, 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 no. And what we're left with is authoritarian. And what we're left with is tyranny. It's just that you have a lack of knowledge going into the truth of these matters. And all you need is some personality qualities as an operational leader 
to essentially render everyone beneath you at the coaching staff support level completely under the misconception that they're not part of an authoritarian tyranny. It's only the other teams in the league that they're competitors. Those are the only authoritarian tyrannies. I work for a really good staff. Un- unbeknownst to them, no matter how nice these people are and how friendly they are, and, and maybe they're, they're good people with respect to their ethical and their virtue, etc. However, so long as you have instruction coming from up on high, the restriction of creative freedom, the inability to criticize anyone at any time on the basis of rational inquiry, and the rest that I spoke about, as long as those are absent or prohibited, you are part of an authoritarian tyranny. That, that's simply by definition. Look it up. Everyone can Google these words and see what they means, see what they mean and find out just how analogous they are to their situation. So we have the, the cultural philosophical on the one end. We have the engineering that underpins it all. We have the competency of the leader in terms of what must what type of understanding and skill set must go into the process of hierarching and candidacy review, these things that we discussed. The engineering is what underpins everything of any mentionable structural or mechanical cost. And if it is not in existence, which it's not, and you do not have this vehicle for accounting, and not only accounting, cohesively synergizing everything done, so such that the relationship between sport coach strength coach and physio is optimized. No amount of the current attempts, for example, with performance direction, this is a failed attempt because essentially what you're doing at most is cohesively synergizing everything but sport coaching, in which case there may be a degree of autonomy with who practices today and who doesn't what type of practice the individual should be involved in based upon the way they're coming back from an injury or their developmental status. However, until you can cohesively bind everything, including the most important thing, which is sport rehearsal, then you are spinning your wheels in an attempt to account for something that you do not yet have accountability over. Sport preparatory engineering is the future in this regard, Robbie, and I challenge anyone listening to offer a rational argument against its projected efficacy. Do you feel that... I'm just trying to word this in a way that you won't rip me to shreds. <laughs> well, then, well, then st- start with not using the word feel and ask me if I think. Okay, think. Um... Do, do you not think that there is some sports organizations out there trying to achieve that with, with these roles of like head of performance? Like they are the composer and then underneath them is the strength and conditioning coach, sports medicine, sports coach, sports science staff. I mean, because you did use the analogy there of an orchestra. I mean, so, and the amount of different musicians in that, would that not be anal- analogous to like the different positions in a sports performance team with the composer being this head of performance? So, because, you know, you, you, you're always 
one to say like you know strength and conditioning shouldn't exist and physio shouldn't exist and, and sports coach shouldn't exist in isolation but like w- like if you were to look then again at the orchestra like would that not be almost analogous to like well we don't really need the bass and we don't need the violinist and we don't need that we can just combine them into this one fellow with this instrument here like could it not still all be unified like the orchestra so that's an interesting question regarding the music. There's a modern jazz guitar player, Pat Metheny, who went through a, a period of his artistic evolution in which he, he, he developed, with, with the help of very knowledgeable people, this, I believe it was called orchestron, in which he as a single musician synchronized, utilizing technology, his ability to activate a variety of other instruments. Hmm. It's somewhat approximate to what you're suggesting. Of course, what you lose there is the nuances that are only achievable when you have one individual that is manipulating one instrument. There is now, now, in the future, could you say would it be achievable for technology to to synchronize the amount of instruments in an orchestra and capture all the nuances? that have up to that point been achieved by individual musicians, we, we certainly could not rule out that being possible. I, I don't know to the extent that that could be achievable with the same level of fidelity that we associate in the analog sense with multiple musicians and the, the individual, the, the variability that distinguishes the the nuances of playing an instrument, the, this is all, it's all physics with respect to the mechanical execution, the, the dynamics of striking a string, the, the dynamics of air and the embouchure passing through a woodwind or a brass instrument, the dynamics of mallets and sticks, et cetera, be making contact with percussive instrument. Just the, the 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 complexity and the nuance associated with all these individual characteristics. Uh, at so far, technology cannot even begin to approximate. Would would if that was to happen? Sorry to interject, Ross. Just want to ask this thought. If that was to to happen, that technology got to that. Uh, advanced level would it not in a sense kill what is so beautiful then about the orchestra in terms of like there is such like there is basically a dynamic systems theory to like a flock of birds how do they know to change direction and you know there's a whole like again quantum physics and, and there's all this like you know again dynamic systems theory too but again when you go see an orchestra play that is part of the beauty that they have to synchronize together and be in such a flow like surely there's another elements within the human species where like that satisfaction needs to be satisfied basically is what I'm trying to say, you know? So if you were to take that away, like would, would that not diminish some sort of the, uh, what's the word I'm trying to get? Diminish like the, the sense of accomplishment, the, 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 the state of flow that one would get from being part of a quote, quote team. If you like, if we're also bringing us back to maybe a successful sports organization working together towards one, well, one thing. I- Certainly you can make an argument for that. However, the question you asked is, 
if one day technology gets to the point, and so to me what that implies is one day, one day technology will get to the point where it is actually approximating the human being, in which case the trained ear would not be able to tell the difference. Yeah. That, that, that sort of goes along with the idea that technology has gotten to that point, and that seems plausible because already people who are dedicating their cognitive energy towards you know, artificial general intelligence in the future that it holds are already collectively it, it seems to be entirely uncontroversial to suggest that the very comment, the, the very existence of true artificial general intelligence is going to be superhuman. It will exceed, depending upon what it's intended for, the ability of any human. And so therefore it seems perfectly reasonable to me to suggest that, well, if we compose It seems personal reason. It seems perfectly reasonable to me to think that you could have the concept of an orchestra being constituted by this technological resource. What What's a bit more difficult to conceptualize is the concept of a single entity, one single brain that is simultaneously operating say all these different instruments that's a fairly easy sell the question is the degree to which the nuances could be included and just as we're talking about this i I can certainly see an argument being made down to the most nuanced level of this being achievable at some point in the future it's just that we're very far away from that being achievable now and as it regards sport, that's the reason why I use these analogies, Robbie. The reason why I use analogies of all of these musicians or all of these subcontractors is to show the approximation of all these assistant coaches, mm-hmm. all these staff members, all these physios, to show that look, it's our you know the these these professions that predate sport when you talk about you know forget what the jargon is when you talk about a group of people working together to build a structure we're going back thousands of years mm-hmm. if we talk about a group of people working together pr- to produce a meal for say royalty we're going back thousands of years so what we what i did what, what anyone can do is simply derive and take a look interdisciplinary what has predated professional sport by millennia and shown extraordinarily viable models of efficiency and take a page out of those books so just because sport coaches can naively rely upon the extraordinary talent of their athletes And the higher you go in sport, the more talented those athletes have to be to be competitive at that higher level, which allows for greater degrees of naivety. The the coach in Ireland who's working with youth rugby players at the, let's say, males that are 8 to 10 years of age has way less room for error than the national coach of Ireland completely uncontroversial because simply by virtue of the fact of all those players 
on the national Irish team being selected for the national team implies no matter how flawed their technique may be from a mechanics review or how primitive their tactical knowledge may be, no matter all that, the fact that they're on the national team implies a certain level of competency in sport. And we know that that distinguishes them from obviously the youth level is a very easy comparison, even the junior level, the developmental level. So that eight to 10 year old coach, unlike the national team coach, cannot rely upon the fact that all my backs and all my forwards are already at least above average in their skill and in their knowledge. Instead, what they're met with is these play these these young people have no idea how to play rugby and I'm going to teach them. Mm. So we 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 compare that to any other discipline. I can we can take you and have you conduct the London Symphony Orchestra next week. You can you can I can call up Simon Rattle and say Simon I'm such a fan of your work. I wrote about you in the governing dynamics. I'm, I'm curious if you're willing to accommodate me here. My friend Robbie's going to take your place in the next Brahms concerto. And what we know is for all intents and purposes, it's still going to be a beautiful performance. Do you know why? Because the musicians are not going to look at what Robbie is doing up on the podium. They're simply going to use their own sense and intuition and, and responding off of each other to perform this piece. Now, will it be as nuanced and as beautiful as a rendition as it could be if Simon is conducting? The answer is absolutely not. However, will it be beautiful? Will it absolutely be acceptable? That's a foregone conclusion. Of course, it'll be acceptable because this is the London Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Or this is the Berlin Philharmonic. There's absolutely no question that it will be acceptable. The question is how exceptional will it be? And that then determines, is, is based upon the nuances of each conductor and what nuances they bring with them to lead the orchestra. But alternatively, if we, if we talk about the, the, the primary school children learning to play instruments... I have all the confidence in the world in saying, Robbie, you're in big trouble if you're conducting that group. Mm-hmm. The, the London Symphony Orchestra, the Berlin Philharmonic, the Metropolitan Orchestra, the musicians at Tanglewood, they're going to be fine. They're going to be fine. Will it be what it could be? No, they'll be fine. At the youth level, Robbie... It's going to be very embarrassing for you, very embarrassing for you. And, and we can make this analogy in any discipline because the less knowledge and skill and ability that an individual has, the more responsibility the individual leading them has, teaching them has, managing them has, supervising them has. The higher the level you go, you could actually have no idea what you're doing as a leader, as a manager. And the public could conceivably not be, be none the wiser. Donald Trump. 
certainly an argument to be made there. <laughs> and, and the irony is he was voted into office. The, it's a universal principle. Mm, mm. Any discipline, if I have the most talented fill-in-the-blank, that allows for the inverse proportion of incompetency. Of incompetency. Yeah. Now, the flip side of that is, in order to have the highest achievement, now you have to have the most knowledgeable leadership at the highest levels because it takes that depth of interdisciplinary knowledge, many discipline knowledge, to achieve the apex of what is achievable. And my argument would be that there is no individual leading a sport team, professional or international, that fulfills that description of having the magnitude of subject matter interdisciplinary knowledge that is necessary to maximize the talent of every individual in that organization to the level of achievable. You have to have, according to my argument, a governing dynamics knowledge to be that type of talent maximizer. Mm -hmm. It's a fundamental product of the continuum of elemental to emergent. We know that you've heard me use the mathematical reference before. As we differentiate, as we derive and we derive and we derive and we derive, we are breaking things up into their component parts. We're becoming more elemental. So in the physical context, we know the most fundamental is subatomic particles. At the level of the base pairs, I believe it's quarks, leptons, there is, uh, to our knowledge thus far, nothing more fundamental. And it's a bit mind-bending when you look into the actual quantities associated. You know, already, you're, you're talking about something that is orders of magnitude smaller than a blood cell. And then when you start talking about the most fundamental subatomic particles that physicists have yet identified, the difference between, for instance, a quark and an electron is all these orders of magnitude. So it's just, it's just the concept of something being a thousand, 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 thousand times smaller than something that's already a thousand, 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 thousand times smaller than the smallest thing that we can think of. <laughs> it's just for perspective's sake, it's really fascinating. Fundamental to emergent. What's the opposite of this? With emergence comes with it complexity because necessarily as we emerge to higher levels of complexity, not only is each level of emergence a product of the sum of its parts, it's more than the sum of its parts. Hence, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Because as we integrate up, the opposite of differentiate, as we integrate up to a higher level of emergence, a higher level of emergence, a higher level of emergence, invariably, complexity arises with it. So it's simply a necessary condition which I think extends far beyond what I'm arguing is just a fact that the higher level of emergence one is supervising necessarily the greater their level of interdisciplinary knowledge must be. The only instance in which you can, let's call it survive objectively on narrow 
specialized knowledge, which I would argue is not useful in any circumstance because you still benefit that much more when you have interdisciplinary knowledge, even if you're a very, even if your work is the focus of a narrow specialty, for example, subatomic particle physics, one could argue that, look, you, you've already got a, a, an enormous amount of cognitively challenging subject matter to assimilate here, you know, the, the standard model of particle physics. Don't concern yourself with, you know, memorizing the encyclopedia while you're at it. Just let's focus your attention on understanding. The thing is, even that particle physics is going to have it, particle physicist is going to have an enhanced perspective on their subject matter as they broaden their interdisciplinary knowledge of, of not only other realms of physics, but other disciplines in general. Everyone is simply benefited by a greater amount of interdisciplinary knowledge, and it just so happens to be that both according to my argument and what I would would consider to be simple fact, that when you're some type of leadership operating at a high level of emergence, which is to say a high level of complexity, you simply must have interdisciplinary knowledge if, if, asterisks, if you intend to maximize the talent that constitutes your subordinacy. Can you survive? Can you survive as a leader operating at a high level of emergence of a complex dynamic system? Absolutely, particularly if you're relying upon human beings Mm. and they're overcoming adaptive compensating ability to, to do what they do whatever the given subject matter is, absolutely, not only can you survive, you can actually be misconceived as one of the best. Which is actually uh, a lot more common than people think, I would say. Precisely. So it's this type of conversation that has to be had more often, Robbie. Mm -hmm. It's got to be, and people need to speak about it objectively and honestly Criticize, conjectures, creative freedom must be encouraged. When, when a best ideas wins culture is truly instantiated, that's a dynamic society. That is one that will progress constantly. And when it's applied to sport, in every sense, for instance, that I write about in the book, a paradigm shift will occur. Results will be seen, outcomes will be achieved, spanning the spectrum from from knowledge and fulfillment and well-being to points on the scoreboard, times ran, distances, you name it. Results will be attained like never before. Why can I be confident in staying that? because of the role that all these general principles play and have been fully assimilated in so many other disciplines apart from sport, many of which existed far before professional sport and have had that much more time to evolve. You, um, I only had one other question, but I, you, you kind of already answered um, with the continuation of our discussion since I interjected with my first question there. But... Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll ask it anyway. Um, 
like so so we're talking about engineering but we are applying that to and again you have answered this because you're saying humans can can compensate because of their adaptability so it's pretty much going to be part of this answer i would assume don't make assumptions on that but uh well, I, th I i think probably robbie i know you have not seen the book yet yeah and and I, I apply I, I offer actual engineered blueprints of what this looks like. Okay. If if you'd seen that, it, you, 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 it, it, it would, it, presumably it would be more more well conceptualized by you because what you, what you have to imagine is I, I said I use the jazz to reference the improvisation, the creative yeah. freedom. Yeah, that's that's the, kind of what answered my question for him. The 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 objective here is not that. Every sport coach, strength coach, and physio turns into an automaton yeah. where I or somebody else simply gives them instru instructions on what to do. Mm -hmm. That's not the objective. Mm -hmm. It's that in, the, in this way, I can, because of the role that improvisation is central to jazz music, it's not to say that improvisation does not exist in classical. It does, but it is, it is the absolute backbone of jazz music. Yeah. And thus... The, the the concept of jazz big band composition is a great it's a, it's an even more accurate analogy to the sport one because unlike in the mechanical sense where say I do not want creative freedom being instituted on behalf of the assembly of this airplane for example I just want it to follow the specs of the engineering to the letter uh, paint it whatever color you want but in terms of the engineering no, I do not want your creative freedom. Follow what's been engineered in the sport context or in the musical context. I, you know, at be, being trained as a jazz musician, I can speak to this. <clears throat> the backbone of a jazz composition for big band in the components of it that allow for the improvisation, which is in the solo areas, what underpins that is simply a chord structure. Now, it's not, it's not important that I give a musical lesson to, the lesson to the listening audience. What you have is this structure that underpins. It provides a creative and conceptual framework on the basis of which these musicians improvise. And what improvisation means is they're playing music that is not written. However, the music that they're playing works over the music that is written. Mm -hmm. So the instrument groups that you have that are accounting for the underlying structure, which I mentioned is the chord structure, that's what provides the form from which creative license is taken by the improviser. So similarly, the examples that I present in the governing dynamics of the engineered blueprint it said this accounts for every aspect of physio, things done on or off a pitch, track, court, rink, pool, whatever, in a weight room, bands, resistance, force, velocity, you name it. Anything done of structural mechanical consequence being accounted for on the single composition. And like the jazz composition, this composition allows for the creative freedom based upon the structure provided. So in the case of the sport, because we have to account for the consequence of what we could, we could essentially reduce down to every action or 
every contact, whether the contact is with the ground, with an opponent, a paddle or a appendage making contact with the water, however you want to quantify every single motion with a quantity, that's what has to be accounted for. The, type, the typology of motion, that's where we can entertain creative freedom. Which is to say, when I, as the engineer, allow for the sport coach to be the supervisor of the execution of the quantity of motions that I have provided for, and the jargon does not matter, I'll utilize the jargon that I, I list in the book just for continuity, competition, specialized developmental, specialized preparatory, these are categorizing the nature of motion with respect to the competition motion itself. So when I provide a quantity range for every single type of motion, what, what I am then guiding the sport coach or guiding the strength coach or guiding the physio, I am guiding them in the intelligent organization and sequence of motions, which they are then allowed the creative freedom in terms of typology, provided it fits the criteria. So we get the best of both worlds. We get the greater predictive ability of the engineering thought that goes into this load programming coupled with the room for creative freedom and creative license of the actual experimentalists. So the engineer is this theoretical position that there's, there's no direct, say, operational supervision interaction, very similarly to how theory drives experiment in physics and many other scientific domains. Every coach, every physio, strength coach, whatever, every, every one of you is an experimentalist. The vast proportion of your time is spent hands-on, supervising, instructing, interacting, doing the work. What you, what you have, Robbie, because there are so few, if any, I mean, I, I'm actually employed as one on a contract basis as a theorist. I don't know of anyone else who I share this stage with. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm unaware of anyone. Mm. But, what, but what you have is essentially every coach practitioner is attempting to wear both hats because what you're doing in the time that you're not coaching or not with your family, if you have one, you're attempting to theorize. You're, you're attempting to strategize and think. But the fact is, there's only so much time in the day and there's only so much bandwidth that a human mind has. This is why I make the argument for pure theorists in sport. It's the reason why you have pure theorists in other disciplines. There's only so much bandwidth 
for the brain. There's only so many subject matter domains that one individual can effectively assimilate. And even if we're talking about someone who is of genius IQ and has a photographic memory and just every sort of cognitive intellectual prerequisite working for them, then you simply have the brevity of time. You have to sleep. You only live so long. There's only so much an individual can assimilate, even if you have all the intellectual prerequisites. So this is why it is so plausible. It's the reason why theorists exist in so many other disciplines. Every single sport program on earth should have a theorist in which they do nothing apart from theorize, compute, calculate, predict, and offer their best attempt to the experimentalists, to the coaches, to the staff, who then puts it on trial. And the successful outcome is what confirms, it does not prove, it confirms the prediction. And every time that occurs, that is progress. I've been fortunate to be able to speak on personal experience of this happening in a, in a limited sense, because this is a, this is very as in, as sound in logic as all of my arguments are. They're also, most of them are very controversial because what I'm doing is I'm criticizing the way everyone is doing everything. So it's not as if my phone is ringing off the hook and my door has been beating down for, for people to bring me in. However, some people have seen the writing on the wall and the result has been uniform in terms of the efficacy. However, the degree to which the knowledge is assimilated is the rub. And so that is why you, one has to be honest about the, the effects that someone such as myself as a consultant can have on an organization because by default, you're working at a distance and relying upon the assimilation of the individuals who are actually the practitioners. But the point is, the significance of theorists, how it should function in sport, and according to the argument I make for sport preparatory engineering, theorists responsible for engineering, for guiding, for directing every single coach and physio is going to be the, the next major paradigm shift in sport and I, I know it's only a matter of when I know it's not a question of if the if question is whether I'll still be alive when it happens in full force but I, I know for certain that it will happen at some point listen that's all I have for today I mean that to me actually end up ended up being one of our favorite conversations I also think it's the least I've ever spoken to one of my podcasts so <laughs> that's probably a good thing as well um, is there anything else you want to add? Is there anything that you feel that you didn't cover in this topic? I have to say, uh, no, I truly enjoyed that now. And, and um, yeah, like, again, as you were speaking, one or two questions came up. But then as you sort of kept going, you answered all the all the thoughts that popped into my mind. So uh, I think that, that was fantastically covered. And as you said, it's covered in depth in the book, which I know I still have to purchase. It's the joys of being a broke master's student and unemployed. <laughs> and well, you're, you know, I... I I appreciate the, the I always appreciate the the interaction, Robbie, the, the you know the the platform, the 
the the the vehicle for having the discussion, albeit as you said, you so graciously graciously essentially are are allowing me the opportunity to, to effectively lecture. the 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 point is is that it's this type of objective dialogue, whether or not we agree. That's secondary. The, the 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 commitment to having an honest, objective conversation based upon the premise of correct reasoning, which we discussed in another podcast, the propositional logic, the logic of implication, you understand that first and foremost. Then the subject matter in question, it, it's this type of dialogue that it just simply has to happen more. Yeah. And when... For instance, the, the the nature of a theory has been constructed on the basis of rational argument and, for example, the scientific method. The whole point is to refute it. That's the whole point, to criticize it. It's, it's why I wrote the book. It's why I conclude the book with a final statement. I think in the very last paragraph, I'm encouraging every reader to criticize everything I've written. Mm. That's the only there is no other way. It is the only way for progress to occur. Yeah. And so the more we can simply talk about that, the the intended objective is that the more this becomes appreciated and assimilated by anyone listening and the more that they share this with someone, then we get an exponential curve. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. That's what the name of the game is in terms of evolution, progress. Right. All right, James, that's fantastic. Uh, I'll just wrap up here and then I'll just say my goodbye to you offline. So... Guys, as always, another fantastic episode with uh, James Smith. Um, so if you can, share it out. Keep uh, leaving reviews on the podcast and all that. And uh, until now and until next time, I'll talk to everyone soon. Take care, be well, and stay strong.